If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you a completely made-up story. It's a fable that I wrote this week, but it's based on the truth. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were with the heavenly host, making their plan for these creatures that they were about to make. We call these creatures people. Uh, these would be special creatures. These creatures would be made in the image of God, made to reflect and to celebrate the image of the triune God, and God would love these creatures. Yet the conversation quickly turned to a problem with these creatures, the problem of their sin and their rebellion. And because God would give these creatures a free choice to honor God or to rebel against the Lord, inevitably, man would choose to sin. So God the Father said that he would send to them the law, a list of rules and commandments to teach them how they should live. The triune God understood that the law would be both good and bad news. It would be good news because it would teach people about the character of God, his holiness, his justice, and his faithfulness. It would be bad news because it would show all people that they did not have the capacity, at least in their fallen state, their sinful nature, that they did not have the capacity to ever measure up to God's demands. They could never on their own have a right standing with God. Jesus, God the Son, then said, Father, send me to them. I will be like them, flesh and bone, and I will live a righteous life for them, and I will pay the penalty of sin for them. And the Father did send the Son, thus the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, now, because of Jesus, it is possible for those who turn from their sins, who believe and who trust in what Jesus has done for them, it is possible for Jesus' right standing with God to be applied to them. It's possible for them to be made right with God because of the life and death of Jesus. It is possible for them to be permanently adopted into the family of God. This was good news, such good news. The Holy Spirit swept in and convicted many of their sin and pointed people to Christ and to the good news of forgiveness and salvation that was offered through him. But then there was another meeting. Now I remind you, this is a made-up story, and so it's not exactly theologically precise, but it's an illustration, so hang with me a moment. There was another meeting. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were with the heavenly host again, and they rejoiced over their love for people and salvation that had been offered to mankind. And they addressed another problem. Life for these people that they had created, life was still hard. It was difficult. It was treacherous. For several reasons, sin, Satan rather, is active. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for those he can devour. He's lying and confusing people. With his lies, he's stealing people's joy and people's peace. And with his lies, he's leading people into sin that is killing them. The people, even those who were saved, still struggle with the remnants of their sinful nature. Temptation is real and addiction is real. The world makes it hard for people to live in a way that pleases the Lord and embraces the peace and joy of heaven. 
Marriages are subject to struggle and decay and collapse. Child rearing is hard and it's precarious. People are worn out in their struggles and so they suffer from loneliness and stress, depression and disappointment, anger. There is conflict, there is fear, there is injustice, there is oppression. The triune God knew exactly what people needed. People needed three gifts, three tools, three protections. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit said these three gifts that they would give would be the perfect and the fully sufficient solution to all a man's needs. These gifts would meet every need. They would provide every advantage. They would solve every problem. They would supply the direction, comfort, strength, wisdom needed to conquer all challenges. Further, they said that the power of these three gifts was amplified when Christians embraced all three. One gift amplifies the value of the next. So the first gift was the gift of God himself via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come to bring conviction and comfort and direction. The Holy Spirit would be the magnet and the glue. He would be the magnet to draw people to God. He would be the glue to make people stick. But as wonderful and as needed as the gift of the Holy Spirit was, people still needed some way to study and to learn about the character and the nature of God, the wisdom and the guidance of God, the expectations and the laws of God, the solace and the comfort that God offers So the triune God gave us a second gift, the gift of the Bible, God's written word. And so gift number one was the Holy Spirit, and gift number two was the Bible. The gifts of the Holy Spirit and God's written word were wonderful, but man still needed one more thing. Without this one more thing, people would drift from the Holy Spirit. Without this one more thing, people would not fully understand the Bible. Without this one thing, people would not have the courage to submit to the directions of the Spirit or the Bible. Without this one more thing, people would get picked off by Satan's arrows of deceit. Without this one more thing, people would grow weary in trying to honor God in their marriages, their child-rearing, and their general faithfulness. Without this one more thing, people would get distracted by the world's ambitions, be seduced, seduced rather by the world's attractions, and fall victim to the world's lies. God had created people to walk with other people, walk with other like-minded people, sing praises alongside other people, serve alongside other people, learn alongside other people, pray alongside other people. So the triune God said the final gift every Christian needs is the church. He said without the church, people won't be able to really discern the leadership of the Holy Spirit and tell the difference between that and the seduction of the world. Without the church, people won't be able to interpret the Bible in a way that isn't just following their own sinful, selfish desires. The church is the key to the value add of the ministry of the Spirit and the power of God's Word. But then the triune God faced one additional question. How will we communicate the importance of the church How will we convince people that the church is absolutely essential in living a God-honoring life and experiencing the full blessings of God? And then the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit said, we will remind them of this truth. The church is the body of Christ. And people understand that just as they use their own bodies to accomplish their own will, 
that God does what God does primarily through his body, which is the church. And then people would understand that the church is the hands and feet of Christ in the lives of all Christians. People would understand that the church is God's plan A for Christians who, is, who are struggling. People would understand that the church is God's first answer to most of the prayers of most of the Christians. So today, we have the church. The end. Okay. I didn't say it was uh, uh, something that they would want to make a movie about. But I hope you understand that God has blessed us with three great gifts, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and the church. And God doesn't expect us to live this hard and difficult life. God does not expect us to navigate through the temptations and the lies from Satan. God doesn't expect us to have a good marriage and godly children. God doesn't expect us to have sanity and peace and comfort without leaning upon the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and the church. The church is not just some religious institution. It's not just an organization, a place for us to meet. The church is one of God's greatest gifts, and it is an absolutely critical part of living out the Christian life with strength and with faithfulness, with peace and with joy. So we're taking the first dozen Sundays of 2024 to see what the Bible teaches about a rightly ordered, healthy church. We're trying to answer some of the why questions uh, that people are asking about the church. Why do we gather? Why do we preach God's word? Why do we baptize? Why do we have membership? Why, why, why? And we'll answer many of these important lessons, each of these. But I want you to see what is our motivation. We want First Baptist Church to be the church that you need for it to be. The reason we want First Baptist Church to be ordered uh, in a strictly biblical way is because you and I need this. Our families need this. Our faithfulness needs this. Our sanity needs this. And our ministry impact in the community, it needs this. So we're focusing in these weeks on the DNA of the church. Now last week we began to answer the question, why do we preach God's Word? And we did a deep dive into 2 Timothy chapter 4, three verses there, verses 2 through 4. Then we turned over to 1 Timothy 3.15, and we learned what the Bible means when it says that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Today, I want us to go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at those same verses once again, and today we'll answer the question from those verses, why do I, why do you need the church to preach the gospel? Can we do that? Let's begin reading in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. So we learned a little bit about this verse last week, the truth that it teaches. The content of our preaching should be what? The content should be the Word of God. He says, preach the Word. Churches should preach nothing more than the Word, and churches should, pre should preach nothing less than the Word. He says here that we should preach in season and out of season. What does that mean? That means that there is no season in the life of the church 
that we shouldn't be preaching. Let's look at verse 3, 3 and 4. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to miss. Now these verses tell us that there is a day coming when churches, when many churches, will no longer faithfully preach and teach the gospel. There will be a day when many churches will, will be more adaptable to the culture than they are faithful to God's Word. And that day is today. Now church, let me put this in a proper frame, because I don't want anyone to, under, to misunderstand. I'm not mad at any other church. We are not mad at some other church. Honestly, it takes all the energy and diligence I can muster to make sure my own preaching is faithful. I'm not that concerned with what somebody else is preaching. But it's also true that there are some churches in our community that are more faithful to God's Word, to teach God's Word, than some churches. And there are some churches in our community that are less faithful to preach God's Word than other churches. But our great concern here is not those churches. Though I pray for those churches, those pastors I know who are faithfully preaching God's Word, and I know of several, and I'm sure there are several who are, and I just don't know them. But our great concern here is First Baptist Church. And whether we are one of five faithfully preaching uh, churches, or we're one of 50, may this church be the pillar and the ground of the truth. May this church not preach according to the desires of the people, as it says in verse 3. May this church not scratch itching ears, as it says in verse 3. And may this church not turn away from truth to preach myths, like it says in verse 4. So I want to take a closer look at verses 3 and 4, and I want to answer the question at hand, why do you need, why do I need this church to preach the gospel? So four, four simple answers. Number one, waves always produce drift. Waves always produce drift. Now if we go back to verse three again, and keep, keep your Bible open to that passage, because we'll look at it a number of times. And if we just look at the first 12 words of verse 3, it says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine just means faithful Bible teaching. Bible teaching that is faithful to the text of, of Scripture. So it says, a time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Now, that tells us that there is a change over a period of time. When it says the time will come, it's talking about uh, a change that's happening. So uh, initially, there were people who did embrace sound doctrine, and then a time elapsed, and now we come to the time where people no longer uh, embrace sound doctrine. So we're talking about a change over a period of time. Now keep that in mind because that'll be important in a moment. The other thing that, that I think is implied here is a surprise. 
Let me read it again. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. See, people were tolerating it, and they never expected that there would be a time when they would reject it, but they were tolerating it. Time passes, and then, surprise, they no longer tolerate it again. That is the very definition of theological drift. And it's a, it's a serious thing, theological drift. Listen to Hebrews 2.1. And this isn't on the screen, but listen. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Now, how does drifting work? You know how drifting works. If you're in a boat on the lake and uh, the motor is not running, you're just in the middle of the lake and uh, soaking up the rays of the sun and enjoying some peace and quiet, but you're not paying attention, what's going to happen? You're going to drift. The wind is going to blow even if you don't realize it's blowing, and perhaps there'll be some gentle currents in the water. And, and between the wind and the currents, if you're there very long and you're not paying attention, you're going to look up eventually and you're going to find what? The boat's not where you thought it was, and you're about to crash into some rocks. You have drifted. One of the things I enjoy doing is swimming in the ocean. And I loved when my kids were young, especially going and swimming in the ocean for hours sometimes. And so you'd go out in the waves and you wouldn't realize it when you were in the surf that every time you took a step, every time you hopped up and landed, you landed about six inches further one direction or the other than you started. And so you play with your kids and an hour or two later, you look up and all the hotels have moved. Have you noticed that? And so you didn't ever realize it, but now you look up and you realize that little bit at a time you have drifted maybe a couple of hundred yards down the beach. You have drifted. Now, the very nature of drifting is this. You don't recognize it until something bad happens. That's what drifting is. Now, when it comes to the truth, we begin by believing the truth, but without an anchor or without something that re-centers us on the truth regularly, we drift. We don't detect it, but we drift. And we wake up one day and realize that we no longer believe what we once believed, theological drift, we've drifted. Now today we see so many churches and pastors embracing things that absolutely are forbidden in Scripture. Now, we scratch our heads and we wonder, how did that happen? Are those pastors wicked men, deceitful men? Are those churches filled with ungodly people? And the answer, listen, is no, they're not. Those pastors love the Lord and those churches were faithful at one point. But what happened is they began to drift. And drifting happened a little bit at a time over a year and two years and a decade and another decade. And now all of a sudden, the whole church is in a different place, not because they were wicked or evil or deceitful, but because they drifted. Let me do just a little bit of, little bit of a time inventory. We all know that we have 168 hours in a week. How many of those hours, you think of what your number is, and then double it because you're probably wrong about your number, but how many of those hours are we just completely opening up ourselves to the influences of the world? 
we're listening to people and movies, social media, surfing the internet, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, uh, reading all kinds of articles or books of one sort or another. Now, all that's not bad, but I'm telling you that every hour of that, it's another wave that's buffeting the side of our boat. And we're drifting. Every single one of us, we're drifting. 168 hours a week, we're drifting. Now, you don't have to realize it for it to be true. In fact, you don't realize drifting. And you don't even have to agree with me in order for it to be true. But with all those hours of all of those waves in all of those weeks, every one of us is drifting. Now, I'll ask the question, how important do you think it is that our church has a time that we take 40 minutes out of the week and we dedicate it to opening God's Word and the best we can, faithfully preaching and teaching, here's what the text says. 168 hours a week, the waves are buffeting against me and buffeting against you. How important is it that we take these 40 minutes and we, and we get re-centered on the truth? And frankly, how much should we complain that it is 40 minutes? Now this is, this is just me, my pet peeve. Can I just have a moment? Listen, it's my birthday. Just give me the next two minutes. No claps. All I want is this. Just listen to me gripe for two minutes, okay? I hear people say, preacher, I know of some churches in the community, and they preach sermons in 25 minutes. Okay? Good. Preacher, don't you think we could cut five minutes off the sermon? People are busy. Now listen, we're not trying to be like any other church. I'm not critical of those churches. They can do what they want to do, and they'll answer to their Lord, right? We're not trying to be like another church, and I'm frankly not trying to get you five more minutes to be on social media on Sundays. <laughs> I know that when I stand and speak, that I'm speaking to people, and I'm in the same category. You've had 7,000 waking minutes over the last week for the world to buffet you into drifting. And if we can take 40 or 45 minutes on Sunday to see if we can do just a little bit of recentering, I don't think we should apologize for that. Why do we need our church family to our church to faithfully preach God's word in season and out of season? Well, the scripture answers it right there in verse 3. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. That's why. Let me give you a second reason. Your vehicle is out of alignment. <laughs> Have you ever had a car or truck and it gets out of alignment? And you take your hands off the steering wheel and the car just begins to drift over into the other lane or off the side of the road. You know, that drift is not because of something outside of your car. It's not because the road is curving. It's not because the winds are blowing. 
Your car is just out of alignment. The problem is something's wrong in your car. Now let me tell you something about me and you. We're out of alignment. Our hearts are sinful. That's what the Bible says. Our hearts are deceitful. We're susceptible to temptation. We are easily victims of the lies of the enemy. And if we just leave our direction up to the whims of our hearts and our desires, every one of us will run into the ditch. Every one of us will run into the ditch if we just follow our own hearts. Well, what happens when a church does not focus on the preaching of God's Word? Well, let's read this verse that we're reading. Let's read it once again. Verse 3, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but what? According to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Now, according to this verse, without faithful preaching, that's the whole subject to this passage, right? Without faithful preaching, how will we determine the standard of truth? It says, without faithful preaching, we will determine what's right and wrong by the desires of our own hearts. But our hearts are out of alignment. And we're going to come to wrong conclusions. You know, it's as if we're fighting a war on two fronts. One front is drifting. There are outside influences buffeting me to veer away from the truth. But there's also an inside enemy, my sinful heart. It comes from the inside and it pushes me to veer away from the truth. Why do we need the church to faithfully preach God's word in season and out of season? Because your heart, my heart, your head, your desires, my desires are out of alignment. And without the flashing lights on the side of the road, without the reflectors, without the guardrails, we're going to crash. We fight a battle with drifting on the outside and misalignment on the inside. Let me give you the third reason why you need our church to preach God's word. We all need to eat our meat and veggies. Uh, let's just take a moment and look at human life. This is not true in the animal kingdom, uh, but for humans, how is it that we grow up to maturity? Physical maturity, I don't know how long that takes, 20 years, 20 plus years, for somebody to go from an infant to a, to a strong, uh, mature person who can take care of himself. What about intellectual maturity and responsibility? How do we learn things? How do we learn a career? How do we gain skills to earn resources to take care of our financial needs? How do we become responsible adults? How do those things happen in people? They happen tiny little microscopic steps at a time. Isn't that true? You don't ever see your kids grow. You don't look at them at breakfast and then they come home for supper and you say, wow, you grew up today. No, it is a tiny little bit. You don't gain the skills and the education and the intelligence. It's not just all of a sudden. There's no magic pill you can take. There's no book you can read. There's no commitment you can make. And bang, you're mature and strong and self-reliant. No, there are no shortcuts. It's a thousand little steps. The same thing is true in our spiritual lives. I'll listen to this because I think we get this wrong. 
spiritually, how do we mature? How do we become a mature Christian? You don't just take a six-week class on Bible basics, make a commitment that I'm going to follow Jesus and, and I'm going to never compromise, and then just bang, that's a mature Christian. No, that's not how Christian maturity happens. How does it happen? A million little incremental steps. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you, by it you may grow up into your salvation. You see, it's that we receive a little nutrition today and then we receive it again tomorrow and next Sunday and then the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that and tiny little incremental steps at a time, we become mature Christians. Why do we need the church to faithfully preach God's Word in season and out of season? Because that is one of the primary ways that God matures us in the faith. It's not just some fast course, some verse you can memorize. It's not, I already know the Bible message. No, it's that every single regular rhythm of coming and hearing God's Word and responding to God's Word and incrementally God matures us. That's how it is. We need to eat our meat and vegetables. That's God's Word. The meat and vegetables, the milk of God's Word. That's how we mature. Why do we need this church to faithfully preach God's Word? It's because that's how we are going to grow. And then the last thing, why... We, we, we need God's Word taught every week in our church because we're not the end of the line. We're not the end of the line. Now, the Lord may return tomorrow or today, and I would be glad with that, happy with that, but we must conduct ourselves and we must conduct our church as if there's going to be another generation that follows. I told you last week that Statistically speaking, the chances that this will be a faithful Bible teaching church 25 years from now are pretty small. Just statistically, I'm not pointing to some uh, trajectory, some problem in our church today, but just statistically, this, this will not be a faithful Bible teaching church in 25 years. And I hope that panics you. It, it panics me just a little bit. And I know some of you are thinking, Pastor, I will never let that happen. You will never let that happen. But the truth is, it's not up to you, is it? And it's not up to me. It's up to the generation behind us. My oldest two daughters are in their mid-twenties. So for me, that's one generation behind me. Mid-twenties. So now, maybe... Maybe I don't need a Bible sermon every week to keep me from drifting. It turns out I do need that, okay? And you're a fool if you think you couldn't drift, because you could and you will. But let's say I don't need it. The generation behind me does, right? And if this church is going to have a hope of being a 
faithful church in 25 years, we need to preach God's word today for those as they mature. You know, I think the best way to wrap this up is with the words of Jesus. So Jesus was preaching his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and he ended the sermon. Uh, he had the most incredible invitation illustration. He ended the sermon by comparing building our lives on the faithful teaching of God's Word to building a house on a firm foundation. He says that there are two ways to build a house. You can build it on bedrock or you can build it on the sand. That's what he said. And there are two ways to build a church. We can build a church on the teaching of God's Word or we can build a church on scratching, itching ears. Let me let Jesus tell you the result. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine, so he's speaking of God's words, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded on that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock, the rock of God's word. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Listen, every church will choose what it builds itself upon. Of course, we're built upon the cornerstone of Christ, but there are a lot of ways to express that. And we'll either build ourselves on the, on the faithful teaching of God's Word, or we'll build ourselves on the desires of man's heart and to scratch itching ears. And when the rains come and the winds blow, what we have built upon will determine what stands and what falls. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed, I, I want to take a moment in both services, head bowed, eyes closed, I want to take you all the way back to the beginning. My little parable, my little illustration that I wrote. The Lord decided to make people. And he decided to make people, we said in that little story, knowing full well that people were going to mess it up. But God had a plan not only to make us and make us in his image, but God, because he loves us so much, God had a plan to redeem us from our sins. I've heard the gospel presented in such a way as if God were just so mad and angry at us that, that Jesus died to, to somehow get God to grudgingly take us back. But listen, no, God loves you. He loves you. And Jesus has made a way 
And God waits. God waits. If you've never put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done, the life he's lived, a sinless life, the death he died, death he died, paying the penalty for your sins, if you've never believed that and trusted that that was enough for your salvation, for your forgiveness, and surrendered to him, let today be the day. That is the very foundation. In fact, the first time the word church is used in the Bible, it's used by Jesus. And Jesus said, who do, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, well, you're the Messiah, the one who's come to save us. And Jesus said, you're right, and I'm going to build my church on that. Listen, today you can trust what Jesus has done for you, be forever and ever adopted into the family of God. That's where it begins. So I have two asks this morning. One, um, respond to Jesus if you never responded. Let today be the day. There'll be people in the front of both services that can help you do that. You can just step out when we begin to sing and, and just take somebody's hand. We're not going to embarrass you or anything, but just take somebody's hand and privately say, I need some help. I want to be. I want to be in the family of God. If you know Christ is your Savior today, here's what I ask. Pray our church will be a faithful Bible-teaching church. A lot of things we could do or not do. There are a lot of styles we could embrace or not embrace. A lot of calendars and emphases. And... But there's one thing that's non-negotiable. We must must be faithfully teaching God's word. Would you pray that nothing would prevent that here? Father in heaven, we do this because we love you and we love that you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In both services, let's stand together as we sing.